Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We're coming to you from the Wilderness Festival. This is a live recording in front of an audience, many of whom are sitting on beanbags. We're in a big open-air tent. Wilderness is a festival with music, with food and with talk. And we are going to be talking about the politics of food. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just one pound an issue. I have two very special guests with me today. It's a pleasure to welcome Sheila Dillon, who is the multi-award winning presenter of the BBC Radio 4 food programme, and Jack Monroe, best-selling author, blogger and activist. And Jack has a new book out, Cooking on a Bootstrap. She's waving a copy that's not going to work on the recording. (laughs) So there's lots that we could talk about, and we're going to get on to some of the more contentious things, including Brexit, exclamation mark, in a bit. But I just wanted to start by talking about how politicians talk about food, because I think there is a tendency when politicians talk about food to use a certain kind of language, and it is the language of personal choice, personal responsibility. There's kind of an assumption that what people eat is down to them. If they eat well or if they eat badly, it's a matter of personal choice. Jack, is that the right way for politicians to talk about food? Is it all about our personal responsibility for what we eat? I think um, one of the most political things about food is the fact that a lot of people don't have choices about the food that they eat and the food that they have. Um, One of the areas that I work in quite closely and extensively is in food poverty and food banks. And there is a complete lack of choice in those scenarios. I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but at the moment, one and a half million people in the UK rely on food banks every week. A third of those are children, and those are people who do not have any choices about the food that they consume because it's what is given to you in a cardboard box by volunteers. So how should politicians talk about food? If it's not the language of choice, what should it be? Well, food is a basic human right. It's a need. It's sustenance. It's something that we all require in order to sustain us on the most basic level. Food shouldn't be used as a political weapon. It shouldn't be politicised. It should be accepted that everybody needs food. Everybody should have food. That's the only way that it should really be talked about. Sheila, are we trapped in the language of choice when it comes to food and personal preference? I I think we're trapped in the that way of talking about it because it suits politicians and it suits the food industry. If you look back at how this whole personal choice thing got going, it got going in the 1970s with the tobacco industry. And the tobacco industry, once they saw that cigarettes really did kill you, decided they had to have a strategy. And the strategy was the personal responsibility strategy. 
pre-Trump, it was the fake science strategy. It was setting up, you know, what looked like citizen groups that are not citizen groups or science groups that are not science groups. I mean, what Jack is talking about is that our ability to access food is rooted in inequality, in the power of the food industry to influence government. I mean, they take, the government takes the food industry very seriously. It's an enormous industry. It's a highly profitable industry. So this choice thing, it's convenient. It's a political strategy. And Jack, when you write about cooking in conditions of poverty on a very, very low budget, politicians have taken some of the things that you've written and used them to show that, again, it's a matter of choice or responsibility, that it is possible to eat well. And I know it makes you very angry when they do that, but just tell us what, how and why you think that so misrepresents what you're trying to do. Because you are trying to show people that it is possible to eat reasonably well on a low budget, but you're also saying something very different about it than the politicians. Well, no, it was possible for me to eat very well on a low budget because I'm privileged in that I'm, I can read, I've got a kitchen, I've got cooking equipment, I've got mostly dexterous hands, I've got the confidence to learn to cook, I had a minuscule disposable income in order to experiment with food, I had an education and I had parents that had allowed me in the kitchen when I was a child. So I, you know, I could cook on a very low budget, but it's not something that everyone can do for many, 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 many reasons. But what I try to do with my work is teach people how to use whatever skills, resources, equipment they have in order to feed themselves better on a low budget. And it makes me angry when, say, Bath Conservative party used me as an example of well benefits should be sufficient because look jack fed herself on 10 pounds a week and um i don't know if anyone here follows me on twitter i wouldn't advise it um it's nothing like i am in real life it's sort of like furious and ranty and i I have things to say and i say them and i went into this absolute tirade back at them about how how dare they use six years of my work to justify austerity cuts because yes you can feed yourself on a pound a day but we're the sixth richest economy in the world and nobody should have to and that's why I take issue with people using my work to justify poverty because it's that's not what it's there for if you can't cook you're really up a creek you know Jack says she's privileged I'm privileged and we've reached a, a very strange point that I never thought we would in in Britain, I, you know, I lived in the United States a long time and I saw people with jobs on food stamps. And we've, we still talk about poverty as though it's people who are unemployed. I mean, we've, we've got millions of people now, people using those food banks who have jobs because we've created this insane society of paying people. You know, I, th- I always think of every little bit helps. Well, every little bit helps the fact that we as taxpayers help pay staff benefits yeah we're underpinning the profits of many many food companies that make lousy food highly highly profitable food and do you think because at the moment the big panic is about the power of the big tech companies the monopolies that they have but also the the ways in which they manipulate us you know there's a there's a huge scare at the moment that yeah facebook and google are somehow messing with our heads but if this comes from the tobacco industry 
they've been messing with our heads and certainly the food industry have too for a generation. Absolutely. I mean, look at the, look at the Coca-Cola emails that came out of um, from Hillary Clinton's campaign. What came out of that was the, the emails between Coca-Cola and one of Hillary Clinton's advisors, who at the same time as advising Hillary Clinton was getting £7,000 a month from Coca-Cola. We know Coca-Cola because, incidentally, we saw the emails, but there's no reason to believe that every other food company doesn't have the same thing where you, you, know, you own some bloggers, you own people on social media, you own academics, you own politicians. And you, also you relentlessly market using all of you the market, most sophisticated you techniques yeah. which are now so sophisticated that but we look don't at, know we're being marketed at. But look at last year. One of the most successful food books last year was The Angry Chef by Anthony Warner, which was well-reviewed in The Guardian and other places of respectability. The guy is the head food technologist at Premier Foods. <laughs> I mean, he is. And they've all, everybody's re- interviewed him in this careful, respectful way. And basically, what he's done is looking at the food industry as the saviour of... You know, only the food industry can save us from the situation Jack's outlining and the obesity crisis and the type 2 diabetes crisis, which is the NHS crisis, etc., etc. What are we about? Don't we understand what's going on? And one of the things that Angry Chef does is he uses the language of science as well, right? Yeah. So, so part of this is about blind As the tobacco industry did. Yeah. So what government does in this situation is primarily give us advice. I mean, government also buys into the, its personal choice, personal responsibility. So its role, as it sees it, is to tell people how to eat well and what they need to eat to eat well. Are we getting good advice from government? <laughs> no. no. I mean, that was a slightly <laughs> leading question. Yes, I mean, um, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say or what I'm supposed the to podcast, say. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do what I normally do and just open my mouth and just see what comes out. But I'm quite frequently contacted by people with close links to government who say we need to write a new NHS eating plan or we, we need to write a school plan or we need to do this, we need to do that. Will you help? And I'm like, well, all right. Well, firstly, what you need to do is you need to roll back your austerity program and then they go quiet and they don't want to hear from me again. Because basically what we used to have in this country was a half-decent welfare support net. And what we used to have was food technology and home economics lessons. And what we used to have was a real baseline of here's how to teach people to cook, here's how to give them enough money that they can sustain themselves, and people did all right. As soon as the government started doing away with those things, and it, you know, instead they go, oh, well, let's, let's print an NHS leaflet with a picture of a plate on it. That'll help. Well, no, that doesn't help. What, what we need is we need, we need investment in education all the way from early years, all the way up to university and beyond. We need to invest in the missed generation, my generation, that didn't learn to cook. I, I did, because I went to a swanky school. I nearly swore then, but I remember we were on a podcast. But, you know, I went to a fancy school, so we learned to cook because we were nice little girls that were going to be nice little wives for someone somewhere, so we had to learn to cook. Didn't quite work out like that, unfortunately. But... We used to have a system that just about held together and people hark back to the good old days. They go, well, my mum knew how to cook. And you're like, well, her mum probably taught her how to cook. My mum was too busy holding down three jobs to do much more than poke a frozen pie and shove it in the oven. Thank you very much. That's where we're at today is it's a mixture of a lack of education, a lack of opportunity, a lack of money, a lack of choice. 
and a lack of time. How are people supposed to just whisk themselves down to some fancy divertimenti cookery class at 80 quid a pop to teach themselves how to make a souffle when actually most of us are too busy and don't have the money and don't have access to those kinds of resources? And, and is the advice the right advice anyway? I mean, are we, are we actually... So there's the whole question about whether advice works or is the way to do it. Yeah. But given that's the way the government has decided to do it, are they giving us the right advice? Well, the whole question of <laughs> do, we, do we pay attention to government advice? Anyway. Um, actually, the dietary survey says we do, but the government guidelines are these, it's called the dietary guidelines. It used to be the dietary plate. And we made a program about that about three weeks ago. And oh my God, I mean, we have had official complaints to the BBC. We've had official complaints about me and my bias. And we've had groups of doctors. Most of them turn out to be active vegans, which is fine, but they don't say that um, because we mentioned eating animal fats. We're not the BBC, so you can say <laughs> what you like on Talking Politics. Yes, but it was a look at people, medics, doctors, research nurses, and so on, who had decided to ditch the guidelines because they feel the guidelines are what is helping to create. Beside all these much, much bigger issues, they're doing nothing to in any way help the health problems we have. But, you know, you just, you just do that small thing and the trolls are after you these people who believe they own the science. I was interviewing the head of Public Health England, which is the government, Quango government department that deals with these things, who's a nutritionist. And I asked him about the role of the British Nutrition Foundation, which is financed by Tate & Lyle, Kellogg's, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, etc., etc., etc. Every global food company there is operating in Britain. And he was perfectly clear that they were able to be completely objective and keep a distance and offer completely objective scientific advice. I mean, we know that 80% of research done with money from an industry source favours the industry source. I mean, they, the scientists doing it may not mean to, but they do. And therefore, you, you know, as head of the Centre for Science and the Public Interest from Washington said to me, Gosh, academics come really cheap in Britain, don't they? <laughs> so one thing that's really noticeable recently is that the issue that has made food rise up the political agenda in a way that it hasn't before is Brexit. And people have suddenly started talking about food in these ways that politicians don't. It's about supply chains. It's about the wider food environment and the food economy. It's about where we fit into the international food system. And for the first time that I can remember food has become a political issue in a way that it's not, as we've just been talking about. And it also touches on this question about you know, some of the things that are valuable in how people talk about food. It's better to be self-sufficient. It's better to eat locally. Potentially fits into a kind of take-back control, national self-identity agenda. How do you see the interrelationship between food and, and Brexit politics? Is there anything good that can come out of this? Could, could it trigger a conversation about food in, in a wider context? You look sceptical. 
Firstly, we live in a pretty shit country with pretty awful weather and pretty terrible growing conditions. So this whole take back control and be self-sufficient and dig for victory and grow your own. We weren't even self-sufficient in World War Two. We're not likely to be self-sufficient after Brexit unless you want to literally live off potatoes and chard. And they're both great that, things. That and I've got lots of brilliant of recipes for them. But do you know what? They don't want to eat them every day. But it astonishes me, absolutely astonishes me, me, a, a, an uneducated idiot from South East Essex, could look at Brexit and go, hang on, if we shut down our trade deals with 27 other countries, most of whom are nearby, most of whom have nice weather and grow good food, our supply chain's going to be affected. Now, I didn't know that because I'm in the food industry, and I didn't know that because I used to be in the fire service and direct emergency vehicles around motorways. I knew that because I'm not a complete idiot. And... And now, we're eight months before, eight months before it all kicks off. We're on the verge of a no-deal Brexit and, and people are suddenly going, oh, mm, we, might actually, um, we might actually stuff this up. We might not be able to get all of our lorries through the ports that have all our fruit and vegetables on that grow everywhere else. And you're like, well, yeah, well, what did you think was going to happen? So food has always been a political issue with regard to Brexit. We have had nearly two years to put contingency plans in place and it wasn't rocket science. It was always going to affect our country in a hugely negative way. And I'm sorry, but if you voted for it, then grr. <laughs> See? <laughs> because people... I, I sort of feel there are not a lot of levers in this audience. <laughs> or, or if there are, they're being Maybe very, they're very quiet. Any levers here? <laughs> levers? I mean, I disagree with Jack in the way that I think we can be more self-sufficient, and we were. If we look, for example, at fruit growing, you know, the EU put out huge payments for people to grub up orchards and, and hops, and uh, Perthshire, for example. I mean, Perthshire is to raspberries as Bordeaux is to grapes. I mean, it's one of the great places in the world to do that. Anyway, the EU put out these grants, these things were grubbed up. We could be self-sufficient in certain things, or we could be nearly self-sufficient, but you know, we're not going to be, we're far too small. And um, we live in a society that since the Second World War has made cheapness the first virtue of food. And it's, it's very difficult to unlearn that, to say, well, actually, we now spend 9% of our incomes on food and really we'd be better off, you know, our economy would be better off, the environment would be better off, we would be better off, the NHS would be better off if we spent 15%. But people don't really want to hear that. I mean, I don't mean poor people who don't have a choice. I mean middle-class people, because it's certainly my feeling that middle-class people eat appallingly. I mean, they're the ones who eat badly. I mean, I'm from a working-class background. I didn't eat badly till I made middle-class friends. And um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm married to an American. I've lived in the United States a long time. And, you know, the, the food system in the United States is just the worst. It is the worst in the world. I mean, maybe if you live on a Fijian island and you live on sweetened condensed milk and chicken wings, you know, imported from the United States, it's possibly worse. But we have consistently followed the American model, and it's been, in every possible way, a disaster. And now we say we're going to have a free trade deal with Trump's America. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
So is there a country whose model we should be following? It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the relentless spread of the, of the food industry, the Western food industry. I mean, when I started as a journalist, which is 30 years ago, I looked at where Western eating patterns were on a world map, and I looked at heart disease and cancer. And if you superimpose one on the other, and diabetes and so on, the two things, they match each other, and they match each other now. But the needs of industry, you know, that have to keep making money, have to keep making money, so you push further and further. So models we used to have, like France and Italy, are being undermined by you know, the same kind of, you know, this will save you time, this is more convenient, this is et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I still think they're better models, but, but it's a bit late in the day now. So we're going to come to questions from the audience in a second. I want to ask one more question, and then we'll take some. So th- who knows when the next general election will be? Maybe it'll be <laughs> in a few months, yeah, maybe it'll be in a few years. Is that and your question? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and it will be dominated by Brexit, so if food comes up, it'll probably be in that context. But is there something that you'd like to hear a politician, a leading politician say about the politics of food that they never, ever say at election time? If, if you could kind of have a wish list of that one thing that you long for one of them to come out and say and they just don't say it, what would it be? Well, just the acknowledgement that a lot of people don't have it, everybody needs it, and some sort of sustainable, half-decent plan to make sure that everybody in the country gets fed is... Um, is the thing that is consistently lacking from our politicians. And I have engaged with politicians on all sides over the rise in food banks, the rise in hunger in Britain for the last six years. And I like him a lot, but (laughs) I met Ed Miliband at Labour Party conference a couple of years ago. And... um, People tried to say, like, oh, that we had this secret meeting. It was so secret, there were about 130 journalists in the room at the time. You know, it was me and my friend Mary Labour, who's a, um, got rheumatoid arthritis, disabled campaigner, and um, Hetty Bauer, who was 95 years old at the time, and she's um, sadly passed away since. And we're all there to meet and like, discuss various issues. And I said to Ed, what are you going to do about the rise in food banks in the UK? And Ed went, well, when we're elected, I was like, no, no, you can't talk about a fictional thing. Turns out it was a fictional thing. Like, ten months in the future, because people will have died in that time. And people have died in that time. And people are dying of hunger in this country. And that is a disgrace. And no one looks it in the face. Nobody acknowledges it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And nobody's got any sort of plan to stop it. And actually, food is a basic, fundamental human right. And people in our country don't have it. And that's what I want them to say. Sheila. Well, I sort of agree with all of that. I want them to say, I suppose, we have, let's face it, we have a completely dysfunctional food system. And we realise, as a small country now, uh, we're leaving the European Union, that we have very little space to influence food companies, food corporations. So we are going to put our money into ending austerity, improving basic incomes, teaching everybody to cook. I mean, I think if everybody learned to cook like a basic life school in primary school, because it would help things enormously. Because 
I really don't see anything top down. I mean, I, I just don't see how it can happen. All I can see is bottom up. And if our government would, if some party would put itself on the side of those people who want to make change from bottom up, there'd be some hope. So we're going to take some questions, and they have to be questions, I'm afraid. That's the way this works. Um, so if we don't get to a question quite quickly. Why are you all so unbelievably pessimistic about the situation with the European Union? The, the reality is quite simple. Mrs May has announced a program to more or less stay in. Mrs. May has got the guts to take on the lunatics in the Tory party. She's survived them for two years. She, she had spent five years taking on the anti-immigration gang in the Tory party and won. So she's clearly going to get her plan through. So why are you all so, so, so pessimistic about it? End of question. Okay, we talk about that question a lot on our podcast, but we don't tend to talk about it in, in the context of food. So can I just broaden it a tiny bit, which is, are we all being too pessimistic? I mean... Have we, have we framed this too much as a series of bad choices? Do you not think that there's a possibility here that this can come out well? I have nothing polite to say. <laughs> um, I <laughs> well, it remains for me to try and say something. Yeah, it's right, all, you're going to be the optimist about Brexit. <laughs> um, if it has provided the chance to have a real conversation about how we should be using our land, how we should be educating, you know, about some very basic questions. But food has been absolutely at the bottom of the agenda in all these discussions. And, I mean, I'm not committing myself to this, but a lot of people think the best thing would be that we still stay within the union, but we're not part of the, the group that sets the rules. Well... I mean, if we're going to be in it, we should be in it. We should be trying to reform the place and, and promote better food and agricultural and health policies. Anything that brings us closer to the United States seems to be a disaster. Right. So I think what's really interesting about this, like I say, we talk a lot about Brexit. There are many, many different points of view, and we've represented them on our podcast too. What's so interesting about food, which is the subject that we're talking about here, is food only features in these discussions at the point where people suddenly start to worry that something might go wrong. What we haven't had is that constructive conversation about food before this point. So we're going to take two more questions. Yeah. Hello. Um, I have, like, sort of... Um, populism is currently ravaging itself through the political world as an equivalent within the food industry, such as wellness. Food populism, what, what do you, you, you... Are we talking goop or are we... <laughs> well, I think, I think the whole um, goop and you know, clean eating and all that stuff is it's one of the results of this screwed up food system we now have where people feel that eating is something that's out of control. I mean, they, you know, they're surrounded, you know, the, the so-called obesogenic environment where you, you know, I don't know, I'm a grown-up. I, I find it very difficult not to buy a chocolate bar when I'm buying my newspaper. I mean, so what is it like if you're 10 years old, you know? I think all these, these things are reactions to this crazy food system where we've lost a sense of, of where culture and history 
taught us how to cook. And, and we know, you know, this, this whole mad nutritionism thing, which Michael Pollan, I thought, put an end to that in his book, you know, In Defense of Food. But this mad system, we, we each have to, we have to negotiate. You know, some of us don't have enough money. Some of us are, we can't cook. We're ignorant about what it does. It all is very frightening. So I think that kind of movement is, they're all reactions to this craziness. I think food is probably one of the only real places we've got left that's safe from populism. Because food is something where we don't have to conform to anybody else's expectations of us. Work in poverty and stuff like that that I do to one side, I also do a lot of other work in food. And it's, it's a whole mixture of cultures, heritages. I started writing a book called This Is England um, a couple of years ago that's on the back burner at the moment. But it's a, a snapshot of how we actually cook and eat today as opposed to Wikipedia thinks we all eat like lamb chops and roast potatoes still and it's like well actually it was about immigration it's about history it's about it goes through the censuses to find like settled populations of people and where they've come from and why they're there and how they've impacted the food around them and I think that food is really our last bastion against the anti-immigration rhetoric against the the Nigel Farage's of the world it was originally called the fuck you UKIP cookbook um <laughs> Penguin said that wouldn't fly, so... Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, I, th I think food is the, w the one place we have left where we are safe from raging harpies and shrieking nationalists, to be honest. I guess it's not really a question, it's more of a, an observation in terms of the difficulties with being able to cook. So it's, it's really easy to go into a store and buy a ready-made meal, but if you want to buy the individual ingredients, it's more expensive to do that. And I think that feeds into what you were saying, Jack, um, essentially. And, and often if you are living on one pound a day, you need those basic other things like the salt, the oil. You can't do it with nothing. So it's not really a question, apologies. <laughs> No, and I think that's completely true. And it's it's one of the frustrations that I have when people say, oh, well, you show people how to cook for a pound a day. I'm like, no, the first thing I do is open some store cupboard and go, what have you got? What can we make with what you've got? And in a lot of those scenarios, what they have is absolutely nothing. There is no salt, there's no pepper, there's no oil, there's no turmeric, there's no herbs, there's no spices, there's nothing in the chest freezer, there's nothing at all. And it's at that point when you've got a pound in your pocket, you go to McDonald's and you go to the saver menu and you get a 99p cheeseburger because it's going to fill you up. And I know that because I did that. And I'm a best-selling food writer. And every now and then I eat six bags of salt and vinegar crisps one after the other because I can't be asked to cook. So <laughs> that's not a revelation or an exclusive, by the way. <laughs> but that's, we're, back to, we're back to inequality. We're back to austerity. And we're back to the tax system, which makes it much more possible for McDonald's to do a 99p burger than for growers of parsley or lettuces because we have a tax system that doesn't benefit people who make simple ingredients. It mm -hmm. benefits people who produce food using the subsidised thing, you know, the soybean, the, the split-offs. You know, that, that's cheap stuff. I wish in supermarkets, instead of having pick and mix that you could buy for like 59p for 100 grams, it's not that anymore, is it? It's about £2.50. So it's the last time I bought pick and mix, that you could buy herbs and spices by the gram. I mean, I, I've lived in London, you could buy pretty much everything by the gram except turmeric and <laughs> <laughs> parsley, bay leaves, salt, pepper and oil. And if you could actually just go and buy things in the quantities that you need them in, rather than, oh, buy a sack of potatoes because it's cheaper... 
Well, firstly, how are you going to get that sack of potatoes home from the shop as a disabled single mum with two kids in tow? And secondly, if you haven't got six quid to outlay for a sack of potatoes, you haven't got six quid to outlay for a sack of potatoes. And thirdly, potatoes are a bit shit anyway on their own if you can't cook them and you can't boil them and you can't roast them and you can't make them into chips. No one's going to sit there and nibble a bag of potatoes, are they? So... In order to encourage people to cook, we need to make basic ingredients even more affordable and even more accessible than they are. So I would advocate stripping out pick-and-mix stands in supermarkets and replacing them with herbs and spices that you can get I'm curious about what you've seen about why people with incomes that could buy those things in the amounts you, you know, they're for sale, why do they buy the cheapest ready meals? I'm going to get in a lot of trouble here, but my girlfriend is a very, very, very wonderful woman, very educated, very smart, BAFTA award-winning TV editor. You know, she's brilliant. She doesn't cook. She can't cook. She refuses point-blank to cook. When I went to hers for the first time and I said, oh, um, I'll chuck something in your oven, I had to take the plastic off it and she lived there for four years. Okay? A lot of people don't cook in today's society. When I've been doing work in housing... New build flats are being built with like a shelf in them with a two ring hob on it and no cupboards because people don't cook anymore. And it's to me unthinkable, but it's not just poor people that are going stabbing ready meals. The most popular ready meal in the UK is the Marks and Spencer's two can dine in for twelve pounds with a bottle of wine and I'm telling you now, no one on benefits is buying those. You know, but ready meals are an okay thing when it's busy middle class people having them. But if it's a single mum on the doll with her 77 piece Sainsbury's basics macaroni cheese, suddenly we're the cause of the obesity crisis. We're out of time, so that's <laughs> going to be the. <laughs> so it just remains for me to thank Wilderness for having us, to thank Jack Munro and Sheila Dillon for a great conversation, and to say my name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Thank you. Thank you, David.